I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. From public books and type media, this is Primary Sources, the show where writers and intellectuals talk about some of the greatest influences on their work. I'm Al Press. My guest today is the artist and journalist Lauren Redness. Lauren is the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant and the author of four remarkable works of visual nonfiction. These genre-defying books combine oral history, visual art, reportage, and archival research to create volumes that look a bit like graphic novels, but read like nothing else you've ever experienced. Among them is Radioactive, a biography of the scientists Marie and Pierre Curie. Thunder and Lightning, a sprawling exploration of the weather. And Oak Flat, a work of reportage about an Apache family trying to protect sacred land from a mining company in modern-day Arizona. Her newest project, a children's book called Time Capsule, has just been released. When I invited Lauren to talk about one of her deepest influences, I thought she might discuss an oral historian she admires, such as Studs Terkel, or a painter to whom she has been compared, such as Paul Clay. Instead, she suggested we talk about an entire artistic medium, which she considers to be her greatest source of inspiration, that of dance. In today's episode, you'll hear Lauren discuss the ways in which the multimedia nature of a dance performance has inspired her to create books that readers can experience as events unto themselves. She also talks about how the elements of discipline, pacing, and improvisation, which are all crucial to dance, inform her approach to her own work. And she tells us about how the New York City Ballet became the location of one of the most memorable and politically transgressive projects of her career. Just so you know, there will be moments where background noise can be heard during our conversation, as is sometimes unavoidable when doing remote recordings in a pandemic. Lauren Redness, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You've said that one of the most significant influences on your work as a visual nonfiction artist is the medium of dance. When did dance first start mattering to you? My mom was a dancer. I could say she still is a dancer. She was trained as a ballet dancer, then became a modern dancer, and now she's actually in her mid-70s doing competitive ballroom. So I grew up surrounded by dance. It was always just a part of our lives. And um, I remember 
my mom talking about Martha Graham and, you know, one time when Martha Graham asked her to demonstrate a certain step and she had my mom hold her arm above her head and she ran her fingers down my mom's arm and said, the armpit is the most beautiful part of the body. <laughs> and so I, I would always hear these, you know, incredible stories. And um, I started taking movement classes sort of as soon as that became an option. I must have been like three years old and then studied ballet um, more or less my whole young life. And um, I decided not to pursue it professionally, but um, I think the discipline and certain ideas from dance have stuck with me and inform more or less everything I do ever since. It's striking that your work um, is such a fusion of different elements, right? Text, images, photo collages. Um, I think in one of your books you have copper plate etchings that you feature. Is that one of the ways that dance has influenced you in a kind of, you know, providing a framework for integrating all those elements into one unified whole? You said it so beautifully. I don't think I can say it any better. Um, but right, like I love the way that you might enter a theater and you're entering a, this world and it, you're transported. Like I love the idea of like you're opening a book and you're entering that world and you're transported and every element of that object should be supporting that kind of time travel or, you know, other dimension that you're entering. Um, I like also thinking about the book as a time-based medium, which we, you know, maybe don't always do. I love that thought that the act of turning a page is is a suspenseful moment, even if it's a, like a millisecond. In that, in that millisecond, there's an opportunity to create drama and surprise. That's something that I definitely took from dance in a way that felt just like really natural. I think when I started making books this way, it seemed like completely intuitive that I would try to gather all of these different elements and make one unified whole. And then it was only like after publishers started telling me like, this is weird and we don't know what to do with this. That's when it (laughs) seemed like, oh, I guess this is unconventional. (laughs) I have to say it really resonates hearing you say that because reading your books is that kind of experience. You know, one turns the page from chapter to chapter, really not knowing what's going to come next. And sometimes what comes next is, you know, a historical document or a lot of text. And sometimes what comes next is no text and just image after image after image. I wonder if you think of that as kind of acts in in this event you've described the book becoming for the reader. The stage opens and then the curtain is pulled back and then there's more and, and there's something new and we don't exactly know where it'll go. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I literally called the sections of my first book, Act 1 and Act 2 and Act 3. Mm. Also, sometimes I think of the books or the structure of the book, sometimes I think of it as a kind of a song. So there's like the verses and then there's a bridge. That Each of my books has a kind of moment where there's a kind of bridge and then maybe like a break and then something slightly different that comes in the last like third of the book. In one of my books, Thunder and Lightning, I know you and I have talked a little bit about this chapter called Sky that comes about that two-thirds mark Mm -hmm. through the book. And that's a book about climate and weather. And the first set of chapters is 
looking at different weather phenomena like rain and fog and wind and then you have this bridge and then the last part of the book is more thematic chapters that look at weather control and geoengineering and weather and religion and that bridge has a really particular role like you say it is wordless and it's a kind of cloud atlas the chapter is called sky and the first set of images are identifiable or <laughs> semi-identifiable oil pastel drawings of um, different cloud formations like you know cumulus and cirrus and there's cumulonimbus and then you get to a page that you know if you had just come to it on its own you would say oh this is blank right it's just a blue page there's no horizon line there's no text there's no identifiable image and this to me was kind of like my moment of silence for the climate. It's like my hope was that because of everything that has set up that moment, because of the context that's come before, all of this like information and dense pages of text and representational landscapes and figures, that when you get to that page, you, it's a little shock. And to bring it back to what you were saying about dance, I mean, if you were to imagine that you've been watching a performance with a group of dancers on stage and there's music and there's movement and action and then suddenly everyone freezes and the music drops out like hopefully the audience would hold their breath a little because you know what's going on and so that's my hope that you get to that page and you and you're like wait what <laughs> but because of everything that's come before you it feels full of meaning even though it's effectively blank right so it's fun, I think, to be able to play with all of those tools when you have both text and images and you can kind of, you know, mess with proportions and, you know, how much text, how much image, how, much, how literal, how atmospheric or abstract things can get. And you can kind of adjust the knobs on each of those things, depending on what you're trying to say or how you're trying to kind of control the pacing, because I think that's what a blank page can also do. It, it changes how a reader moves through the book. It changes what feels important if there's only one line of text on a page, right? You kind of add emphasis. That is such a striking part of Thunder and Lightning and, and that book, uh, because as, as you said, there, there's a lot of text and one is reading at, at length in some of the earlier chapters. How much does sort of setting up a chapter like that, that has no words, you know, how much are you thinking about when it comes, the kind of the pacing of the performance, if you will? Yeah, I think about structure a lot. It's maybe one of the first things I try to work out in any book, even if it changes drastically as, you know, as the work continues. I think having like a kind of list of chapter titles and um, a vague sense of, of the shape of the thing helps me a lot figure out what I'm trying to say. I don't exactly remember when... I placed that chapter. I think I always knew it had to come kind of late, right? Because if it came early, it might just feel decorative mm -hmm. or almost like an accident. You know, like, you know, that page what could look like here? a mistake, yeah. right? It's like <laughs> right. a printer's error. Exactly. Where <laughs> so, are the words? Right. So you have to kind of earn that sense of intentionality by building toward it. That makes a lot of sense. What you just said made me think of something else I really wanted to ask you, and it, it very much relates to dance. Dance is, or can be, highly choreographed. 
but it can also be improvised, spontaneous. What's the balance for you in, in your work? How much have you plotted and planned it out as a choreographer would? And how much of it is you have to sit down and just start drawing or creating the images that go into it to really know what you want in there? Oh, I love that question. Um, and I, I kind of want to ask it back to you in a certain way, because I think for me, it's all about the reporting. I think I start with more of a question or, you know, a set of questions than a kind of very, like you say, choreographed or plotted out plan. I think um, my hope is that I'm going to be surprised as I report it. My hope is that in what I learn and who I meet, I will find things that I never could have predicted that inevitably will be more interesting than I, what I you know, would have imagined without going out into the world. So I wait and work until, I guess, I find those surprises. I definitely don't kind of lock it in before I've sort of been educated. I can definitely relate to that. Um, and likewise, feel like the the greatest value in my own work is the stuff that comes unexpectedly and, you know, hits you um, and changes maybe how you see a person or a situation you're trying to depict. But I, I am also curious about the after of the reporting. So like, can you kind of create an outline for yourself or is it in just kind of going to work, sitting with the material, looking at it, that it sort of spontaneously unfolds? I think the first thing I would do is bring my interviews home and um, you know, transcribe them, of course, and then start editing them and seeing what emerges. And then as I write the narrative that goes around the interviews, the text is coming together, the shape is coming together, and then I'll literally bind a blank book. I'll just, you know, sew together a hardcover blank book that's the number of pages that's in my contract not that it can't change but I like to have that constraint to work against right and then so I have this object and then I will literally print out a Microsoft Word document and physically cut it up and scotch tape it into the pages and kind of map out the pacing and like where the words are going to fall what text will fall on each page and then the chapters start to come together and then I can start seeing what images would go where because simultaneously to the text reporting I'm also gathering a lot of visual resources so I'll be drawing on site I'll be taking photographs maybe gathering archival material and so I have a kind of archive of that to pull from and then I'll start usually with a Xerox machine, just, again, like literally cutting and pasting these elements and then um, just kind of building it up like a layer cake. Wow. I can imagine a choreographer listening to that and relating to it. Um, I want to ask a little more about echoes of dance and connections to dance in your work. One of the most direct connections to the world of dance in your work was an installation you did, I believe, at the, the David Koch Theater at Lincoln Center, which is the home of the New York City Ballet. Can you describe that work? Yeah. So it was fall 2019. And Sunday morning, I checked my email. I see Wendy Whelan in my inbox. Wendy Whelan, it was 
you know, she's one of the great ballerinas of the past many generations. You know, my heart stopped because like, oh my God, Wendy Whelan. And then I was like, oh wait, this is probably like a solicitation for a fundraiser or something. What am I kidding myself? And then, so I click on the email. It turns out it was not a solicitation. So she wrote me this very cryptic note, you know, can you meet me at the theater? And so um, I go up to theater, meet Wendy. And for the past, I was the eighth, so the past previous seven years, they've invited an artist to create an installation in that kind of atrium space of the theater, which is about 8,000 square feet, you know, four tiers. And um, she said, we want you to do something here, create something for this space. And so I was like, you know, I'm very used to working within constraints. I'm like, oh, okay, so what are the limitations? What, you know, and she was like, no, no limitations. <laughs> I'm like, what? So um, I was sort of brought into the world of this, of New York City Ballet in a really interesting way, because I think that was the ethos that the founding uh, choreographer, George Valentin and Lincoln Kirstein worked with. It was like, just give people artistic freedom and see what they do. So I was trying to figure out what would be a meaningful project to do here. And like you say, this is the David Koch Theater. And obviously, you know, that gives me pause. I started to think about about that neighborhood, what it had been prior to the building of Lincoln Center. It was a place called you know, San Juan Hill. It was a place where there was a vibrant black community, a Puerto Rican community. There was actually a very vibrant art scene there. And it was um, declared a slum and cleared out and Lincoln Center was built. So my first thought was, oh, maybe I could do something about San Juan Hill. Maybe I could find people who lived in San Juan Hill before Lincoln Center was built. And, um, you know, just mulling these things over. And, of course, the clock is ticking because this is end of October. The opening was end of December. The installation would be end of December. So it was a pretty tight turnaround time to make the work. And then I ended up, you know, sort of as I was sort of spending time at the theater while I was trying to figure this out. I was spending time backstage and, and I was just thinking about, you know, looking through this massive building, you know, who changes the light bulbs? There are like thousands of light bulbs here. And, you know, who launders the costumes after a performance? And so I was just thinking about how all of the invisible work that goes on, the work that's, I should say, invisible to the public, right? And um, you have these celebrated dancers on stage, but then you have hundreds of people who work at the theater whose labor and creativity goes largely unrecognized. So I decided that I was going to interview and portray, create larger-than-life-size portraits of people who work behind the scenes at the theater, security guards and ushers and you know, the people who change the light bulbs and the people who clean the bathrooms and the people who do the laundry and, and all sorts of other, you know, the piano tuner, all, all sorts of people. So that's what I ended up doing. And the portraits were transparent. They hung all around the, the different tiers and then some were about 40 feet high hanging from the top of the atrium to, you know, more or less the base. How many portraits did you do, Lauren? 105. 105. So for a period of time, I guess for that, this was pre-pandemic, I take it? Just pre-pandemic, yeah. Just pre-pandemic. People are coming to the New York City Ballet and walking through 
a series of portraits of these hidden workers that surround them. Is that is that right? Yeah, and reading their oral histories, which were included as like wall panel text. Is there a particular portrait that stands out to you that you'd want to describe to us? Gosh, there's so many. I sort of fell in love with everyone, so it's hard for me to choose. But, well, there was the head of security, Clem Mitchum. He was a really wonderful guy. He um, originally from St. Kitts in the Caribbean, and um, he actually has three sons who are stagehands, so I I did their portraits too. And um, he... It was a very intimidating moment because you know you're you're doing this portrait of people who work in this building, so you know they're they're going to come and judge <laughs> judge this <laughs> installation with a very very sharp critical eye. So um, as the installation's going up, and there are some funny moments where like literally the person who's helping with the installation doing like the physical labor is like installing their own portrait, and um, so Captain Mitchens comes in. I I see him from across the atrium. I'm like way across, and I see him walk in, and I see him go like from portrait to portrait to portrait. And so I, as he's getting close to his portrait, I like ran down the um, corridor and I caught up with him, and I just like stood next to him while he was looking at his portrait. And he like examines it, examines it, and then he looks at me and he's like, "I'm much more handsome than that." <laughs> That's great. What a great story. I have to say, hearing about that installation, which I wish I'd seen, I've, I've seen the images you created because some of them are online, but um, creating these portraits of these invisible workers reminds me of my own recent book, Dirty Work, which, which is, which is a, thank you, thank you. Um, but as you know, it's, it's a book about hidden labor, uh, hidden morally troubling labor that society sort of very much prefers to keep hidden from view. And the issues of class and politics are pretty explicit in my book. I wonder what role you see class and politics playing in your work. You know, you mentioned the David Koch Theater, and it seems that, that you had a kind of you know, a, a bit of a pointed message or, or a motivation to kind of have the hidden made visible to, you know, the audience members, to the world surrounding this august cultural institution. And yeah, I'm just curious if if that is an impulse you often feel. I think it is. You know, sometimes I feel like I don't necessarily have the vocabulary to discuss these issues properly um and i think this is this is like one of my deficiencies that come from having a background in dance and visual art and then becoming a writer sort of by accident is that this like nonverbal communication is a much more comfortable place for me but yes we look around at the world right it's a, such a mess the way i mean what you describe in your book i mean it's it's heartbreaking and I don't want to ignore that. And I guess, you know, the way that oral history functions in in my work is just, yeah, to just listen to people, just to hear their stories and and hopefully convey them in all of their complexities and contradictions. Lauren, you've said that one thing dance taught you back when you yourself were a dancer is discipline, you know, showing up every day putting in the work. 
Can you talk a bit about your process and how it relates to dance? What is a typical Lauren Redness workday? Yeah, like, right. So a dancer is a very, you know, at least a ballet dancer, it's a very formal and pretty universal process. A dancer shows up for class in the morning and goes through this kind of set number of exercises. And that's the start of every day without fail. So having had that habit formed in me, I think, made me feel like you just show up, you just, you know, draw every day. You just do this. You don't, you know, wait for lightning to strike or whatever. I think another kind of like pretty driving force in my life is like the sense that time goes too fast. I think that's why I started drawing just as a recording tool. And um, even when I started interviewing people, I just started recording my grandparents because I was like, oh, time is moving too fast. I'm going to lose all these stories. So, so I think there, I have that sense of urgency which is good and bad. <laughs> can make you feel pretty anxious unnecessarily probably, but, um, but yeah, so I think I keep kind of steady pace. You know, your work is grounded in, in history and facts, but all of your books have this kind of dreamlike quality. Some of the images are abstract, they're surreal. Is dance part of what figures into that? I think that the aesthetics of dance definitely have influenced me, whether it's like the kind of emotional impact of abstract elements like color and light or pattern. And one really early influence on me was um, Busby Berkeley, the dance choreographer who made those kind of psychedelic films in the 1930s where you see like, you know, hundreds of girls playing the violin in this kind of aerial view of these kind of kaleidoscopic spinning swirls or, you know, there are mirrors and all this kind of, um, you know, really ahead of its time strangeness. Sometimes a sense of like light and shadow and movement and line in space, right? You talk about like a dancer's line, but also, of course, like there's the drawn line. And I think that my sense of like bodies in space and anatomy is definitely rooted in my study of dance. It's fascinating. Let me just ask one final question. What are you working on now? Are you at liberty to talk about it? And does dance figure into it? Right now I'm working on, um, well, I finished a children's book, which will be out in um, spring, spring of 2022. It's about who gets to write history, I guess. It's about what we want to preserve and what we imagine the future to be. And um, there's no explicit connection to dance, I would say, but there is something funny that does connect to dance, which came to me because people have asked me a number of times, like, oh, what age group is the book for? And I never knew how to answer that question. Always like kind of um, tripped me up. And I realized it's because the any children's book, right? Or at least any decent children's book, I hope, really has two audiences. You're writing for the child, but you're also writing for the parent, right? And so hopefully the book is meaningful to both the child and the parent. And I thought of that. I was like, oh, it's a kind of pas de deux, right? Hmm. You have these two people in this dynamic experiencing this story together. 
Well, Lauren Redness, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about your work and for talking about dance. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Primary Sources is a co-production of Public Books and Type Media Center. Public Books is an online magazine of ideas, arts, and scholarship. You can learn more at publicbooks.org. Type Media Center is a nonprofit home for independent journalists. It's committed to building a more equitable future for journalism in the public interest. Learn more about its flagship programs at typemediacenter.org. Our show's executive producer is Caitlin Zaloom, the founding editor of Public Books. Our producer is DJ Kashmir. Our engineer is Jess Engabretsen. Special thanks to Kelly McKinney, the publisher and managing editor of Public Books, and Taya Grobo, executive director of Type Media Center. <laughs>